Well, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. And uh, today we're uh, continuing in John chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6. And we're going to go down through verse 26. So here we are, John chapter 12, beginning with verse 6. Um, he said this not because he cared. Oh, you know what? I think I'm, I'm supposed to start at uh, verse 12. That was, last, that was last week. Yeah, sorry. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had uh, heard he had done this sign. So, yeah, when you, when you raise someone from the dead, that's, that's a pretty... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you shouldn't be surprised if large crowds come out to see what's going on at that, at that point. Uh, verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They weren't raising anybody from the dead, apparently. Uh, verse 20, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, Philip, I think, is the only disciple with a Greek name. I could be wrong about that. Maybe that's why the Greek came to Philip. Um, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So we've been talking about the hour as we've been going through John's Gospel. And up to this point, the hour had not yet come. But it's interesting that now that these Greeks, these Gentiles, are arriving, it seems to be an indication that now the time has come. The time has come for Jesus to be glorified. And of course, he's referring to his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. That, that hour has now come. And in verse 24, Jesus continues... Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let me pray before I continue. Uh, 
Holy Spirit, come and bring us to the throne of Jesus. And we pray that you would continue to grant your, your servants boldness, Lord, to, to speak your word as you stretch out your hand to heal and deliver all who were oppressed by the devil. And as we are, we are gathered here today, here in this building, and everyone watching online, we, we pray, Lord, that uh, the excellencies of your name would be proclaimed and that you would be seen and that people would come to know you and that you would draw them to yourself. Uh, Lord Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. Okay, so we start with, with Palm Sunday. And Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and there's a big crowd come out to meet him, and they've got palm branches, and they are excited because they believe the king is arrived, or has arrived, um, now, in less than a week, some of these same people are going to be crying out for his blood. And that's, that's a really interesting... What does that tell us about what's, what's going on here right now? Jesus entering the city, they're, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, proclaiming a king. And in less than a week what they're going to be proclaiming is crucify Him. There's something about Jesus that they've missed, they didn't quite get. And when you look at this quotation here, in verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, that's an interesting quotation, because if you go to Zechariah, which is where the bulk of the text is from, you go to Zechariah, I think it's chapter 9, verse 9, it doesn't start with the words, fear not. So it seems like what, what John has done um, has, has pulled those words from somewhere else in the Old Testament and he's added them to this passage in Zechariah. And we, we can't be sure, of course, which particular passage he's drawing from, but one contender that's been suggested to me that I think has a good chance of being right is Zephaniah. It's Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 16, where the prophet uh, writes, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Now what's interesting about this, this quotation is it comes in a passage beginning with verse 9 that is referring to the conversion of nations. Okay, so if you go to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with, with one accord. So this, this emphasis on um, the universality of the gospel is really hitting home here in John right now. And I think that's a good reason to draw that quotation from Zephaniah like we've done. And you see, the crowd, they, they were pleased with Jesus as their king, uh, so long as he was going to be kind of a nationalistic king. You know, he's going to be their king. He was going to be their guy who was, who, was, who was for them and against their enemies, against the Gentiles, right? 
And this is something that, uh, this is one of the track mindsets that Israel continually falls into in the Old Testament. Maybe uh, their biggest mistake. You see, because they had been given a status, and they liked that status. They had been giving a, given a status as, as God, as Yahweh's treasured possession. And they, and they liked that. That's good. But they had also been given a role, Right? Their role was, was to be a, a nation of priests that would represent Yahweh to the nations and bless those nations. Now, they, they liked the status, but the role, they, they didn't like that so much. And they, they continually missed that. All, all, they, all they got was, well, we're, we're God's treasured possession. But they, but they missed out on, but God's trying to reach out through us. For, for them, you know, Jesus, they, they wanted that Messiah. They wanted the Messiah was for them and against their enemies. And uh, I think sometimes Christians, we want that kind of Messiah. We want a Messiah who is uh, for conservatives and against liberals. Or for liberals and against conservatives. We want a Messiah who is for the Reformed and against the non-Reformed. <laughs> the Arminians. Uh, the provision, uh, what do they call them? The provisionalists. And even on a personal level in our own lives, right? Well, what happens when a, when a Christian brother crosses us or uh, insults us? A Christian brother or sister? Isn't it really easy for us to kind of slip into that mindset that I, I don't know if Jesus is for my, that brother. <laughs> that brother that's crossing me and insulting me. I, I kind of think Jesus kind of likes me a little better than that guy. <laughs> You know, and I, I, I'm speaking from experience, right? I'm just saying that that's very easy. It's very easy for us to, to put that gospel in a box and say, that's just for me. God's favor, His blessing, His mercy, that, that's for me. But that's not for um, the people who are against me. Now, now, obviously, Christ uh, isn't a real... He is the truth, right? And He's against falsehood, and that's true. But I don't think He's against the people who have been seduced by falsehood. Christ loved His enemies, and He wanted, he, he wanted to liberate them. And He wants us to liberate them with the message that He's given us. The power of the Gospel to liberate those who have been oppressed and seduced by the devil. And we have to remember that our, that our struggle here, it's not against flesh and blood. But it's against the, the manifest the powers of the evil one. And that's going on. And so we need to, of course, uh, you know, in the context of church, we need to love our brothers and sisters, even those that <laughs> get on our nerves from time to time. And we need to make sure the loving people outside the church. And we're not just trying to make Jesus our own, our own treasured possession. You know, something... Along these lines also happened in Jesus' hometown. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes home to Nazareth, and He goes to the synagogue there, right? Many of you are familiar with the story. It's in Luke chapter 4. He starts reading from uh, the prophet Isaiah, and, and people are impressed. And it says, Luke says, everybody was speaking well of Him. They, they thought, this is great. You know, this is our hometown hero who is made good. But even they had that kind of possessiveness about them. And Jesus could see it. And before they get too excited, Jesus goes, now wait a minute. Wait a minute here. Uh, let me tell you, let me remind you something. You know, when, um, 
the prophet Elijah was, was at uh, work, and there was a drought for three and a half years. He wasn't sent to minister to any widows in the land except the widow from Zarephath, uh, you know, a, a Gentile woman in Sidon. And then he talked about the prophet Elisha, and he said, you know, when Elisha was doing his ministry, there were a whole lot of lepers in Israel during his ministry, but he, wasn't, he didn't cleanse any of them except Naaman, the Syrian. And, and the crowd picked up on his ministry. You see, they, that's what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to be against those people. And Jesus saying, no, no, God is, God is for them too. And they got so mad, they, they were about to kill him. It's the same kind of dynamic. They, they're excited about him, and then it just immediately they turn, like, like these crowds here that John is describing after 12. And then, continuing on, his disciples didn't understand these things, verse 16, at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had, or sorry, about him and had been done to him. And he goes on to talk about a, a big reason that these crowds were, were gathered there is because Jesus had worked this circle. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. We see these Greeks starting to spill in here. They, they want to see Jesus. They, they, want, they want a piece of him. They want, they, hopefully they want the whole thing. And then Jesus, in verses 24 through 26, he speaks these, these series of um, sayings here. And they're all, they're all kind of similar here. Verses 24, 25, and 26. That there's, there's a kind of living that leads to death. And there's a kind of death that leads to life. We're looking at that. That verse, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And in verse 25, it's very similar. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever, loses, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. So let's, let's take a... An example of this straight out of the gospel. I think sometimes it helps us to look at particular examples to get a feel for what Jesus is saying. Remember the story of the rich young ruler. I'm going to go to Mark chapter 10 here. In Mark chapter 10, verse uh, 17... And he was setting out his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the first thing about this was pointed out to me very, just this morning. Something that's interesting here. This, this rich young ruler runs up to Jesus. And this is in a public place, okay? Uh, imagine what this would look like if you saw somebody that was just dressed to the nines, you know, wearing a wearing a business, you know, a thousand dollar, two thousand dollar business suit, really nice tie, expensive shoes, and Jesus is walking around town, and you, and you see this guy come come up to Jesus in front of everybody, you know, 
just gets down on his knees and humbles himself like that. It's very interesting. This, this uh, rich young ruler, he's serious about this. He's, he's kind of throwing, uh, throwing um, respectability out the window here. And he comes and kneels before Jesus. And he asks a, a very important question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I've noticed that evangelicals, they really struggle with this passage because it does not fit their theology well. And they really want to bring the hammer down on this rich young ruler. I mean, starting right here with the word do. You know, they say, oh, there he goes. <laughs> he wants to do something to inherit eternal life. Now, this guy just doesn't get it, you know. But what does Jesus say to him? Jesus responds in the, in the last way an evangelical would ever respond, okay? He says, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There, there's, I mean, right there, I mean, my goodness. <laughs> no one is good except God alone. And then he goes on to say, you know the commandments. And we're thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? You should have told this guy that you're, you're justified by faith, right? And uh, we, we don't, you know, what, what do we have to do as Christians with keeping the commandments, you know? And, and here's an interesting passage for you. I just wanted to put this out there. Do you remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19? The Apostle Paul, who championed justification by faith, more than anybody in the New Testament. Let me see if I can find the verse for us. This is 1 Corinthians. I don't know if I said that. Chapter 7, verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. <laughs> so I just want to see if you can fit that into your theology today without watering that down. Okay, so Jesus says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And, uh, and here's, where, here's again where the evangelicals get really upset with this, with this rich young ruler's response. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And we just want to go, you, you liar. <laughs> you have not... And again, but how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond to this? He says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now that is fascinating to me because if this rich young ruler is just telling a bald-faced lie, and of course, I don't think he kept the commandments perfectly. I don't. But if he's just, if you know, has he, let's take a look at what Jesus said, said again. He probably hasn't murdered anybody. He very well might not have committed adultery. Now, now we know that on the Sermon on the Mount that there's a, there's a deeper meaning to this commandment and maybe this, this rich young ruler didn't get that. But on an external level, maybe he didn't commit adultery. Maybe he had never stolen anything. Maybe he had never lied about, about anything. Maybe he honored his, his father's... That, that's possible. I don't think he was perfect. But Jesus, he doesn't uh, uproot him on that score. And if he was just saying a bald-faced lie to Jesus, it's fascinating that Jesus, at this point, we would be told, looks at him and loves him. <laughs> like, why didn't Jesus uh, take him to the woodshed? He doesn't. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have 
and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. This, this rich young ruler, he has one thing in his favor that I think a lot of people don't have. Okay, he, one, one is he, he really wanted eternal life. He, he was hungry and he was thirsty after this. I don't know that a lot of people are. I don't know that some Christians are. But he wanted this. And the second thing that, that he kind of realized, or at least I hope he, he comes to realize this, is that um, the law couldn't make him perfect. And that, that's absolutely right. I mean, whether he, whether he figured out that on his own or through Jesus, but the, the law didn't have the power to make him perfect. The law couldn't give him life. He knew that because he tried to keep those commandments and he didn't have it. And so, and so Jesus says, okay, here's a guy, he's genuinely hungry. This guy is serious about this. And so he says, here's what you've got to do. You've got to hate your life in this world. You've got to die if you want to live. And you've got to come follow me. And then a rich young ruler, he just, he, he didn't understand what was being offered to him. You know, we talk about that, that parable of the pearl of great price, right? Where Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and he says it's like this, this guy who, who finds, he discovers this, this treasure that's of an estimable, inestimable value. And he goes and hides it in the field and he, he, he gets every penny he can get, you know. And he, and he goes out and he buys that field. Now, in a sense, you could say, okay, he sacrificed all he had to, to buy that field. But when I read that story, I, I don't think that guy saw it as a sacrifice, really. I, I think he just understood the value that, that's what God, I mean, he just said, I don't, this is more valuable than what I've got. And that's why he, he, with joy, he went and he sold everything, he got every penny he could get, and he bought that field because he recognized this is way better. And that's the one thing this rich young ruler didn't quite get yet. He didn't understand that fellowship with Jesus was a lot better than what he had. He had, you know, he had money. He had a, a moral character to him. He probably had a lot of people uh, waiting on him. He had a lot of stuff. But one thing that he lacked, he didn't see the value of who Jesus was. So, you know, we, we, we talk about, you know, hating our life in this world. Now, that, that can be misunderstood. That can be. I, I don't think what Jesus is getting getting at here is, um, you know, I, I'm, whenever I go to a restaurant, I'm going to look at a menu and, and see the thing that I think is the most disgusting, and that's what I'm going to order. Because I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to eat my life, you know, in, in this world. I, I don't think that's what, what Jesus is talking about. But on the natural plane, okay, I think the, the way we're kind of wired, the way we come into this this world, is we think, um, you know, the, the path to happiness, really, is going to be through self-gratification. 
Like, like that's, that's really the thing that's going to make me happy. When I can get my way, you know, like Frank Sinatra did. That, that's, that's what I want. I want to have it my way as much as I can possibly get my way. Now, of course, you realize that you can't just live a completely self, selfish life, <laughs> you know, like that, and try to get your way all the time because everybody's going to get mad at you and then you're going to be miserable, you know. But we can still be subtle about this and try, you know, as much as I can. I, I want to get my way, if, if at all possible, without making too many people upset. And that, that is what's going to make me happy. And, and uh, you might know that people, I mean, we're like this, right? When we, get, when we get our way, when we can get our way, oftentimes we are happy, you know? And in this world, you can, uh, you can carve out a kind of happiness for yourself by getting your way, especially if you're uh, pretty well-to-do and you're pretty good conditioned physically, you know? You can go out and have some good times. But Jesus said, you know, what, what's it going to profit you? Gain the whole world and lose your soul. What profit? What will it profit us to be naturally alive if we're spiritually dead? And that's that's what he's that's what he's getting at here. You know that, that our greatest sin, uh, to quote Leonard Ravenhill, or, or it's a paraphrase, but it's that we're trying to manage our lives without God. You know, we, we, we get hung up on um, our own goodness, our own respectability, and a million other different things as Christians, and we forget, you know, that the, the, the point of all this is, is to fellowship. This is to be connected to Jesus, right? And there's no barrier. There's nothing standing between us. There's nothing to prevent us from having union with the Lord. And it's to recognize that, that that is more valuable than anything else. It's not just to actually believe that, though. You see, that's the question. I can say those words, and I can put those words on my lips, and that's very easy to do. But here's what I want to challenge us, myself included with, is, but wait a minute, do I really believe that? That Jesus is better. And there's, there's nothing, okay? Our sins, our failures, the, the good news is we are justified by faith. We don't need to identify ourselves with our mistakes. We don't need to ident- identify ourselves even with our lack of desire, maybe for the, the things of God. We don't have to identify ourselves with those things because we, our life is hidden in Christ by faith. I don't define myself by my sinfulness. I define myself by Him. And in Him I find my identity. In Him I hide my life. And that's where I have that sanctuary. And that, that's, you know, God wants servants, but, but the Lord, He wants friends too. And so there's no reason for us to hold on to those things. You know, there's a, there's a sense in which to, to come to Jesus, we all of us, we do have to go through a kind of Gethsemane. Right? 
What was Jesus doing in that Garden of Gethsemane when he was kneeling down? And he, what, what was his, his famous prayer, you know, that we all know of? When he was in anguish and agony, he, he says, not, not thy will, or sorry, not my will, but thy will, your will, be done. That's what it means to die to ourselves. That's what it means to lose our life. When we get to that point where we say, you know what, I, I, I want your will, God. I want the whole thing, not just some of the time. I don't want to move in and out and be here sometimes and there sometimes. I, I, want, to, I want to be able to say that, you know, I, I want your will. And that, that involves a kind, of, a kind of agony for us, a, a kind of crucifixion even, to die to the things that are holding us back from Jesus, to die to the distractions, the desires, the hopes, anything that's holding us back and, and, and dying to those and saying, no, I want to live. Lord, I need You. And if we could just learn to delight ourselves in the Lord, then, then the psalmist says, He'll give us the desires of our heart. And so that's what I want to leave us with this morning. And... Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this in prayer. Lord, we thank You for the free gift of eternal life You offer to us. The free gift You have made available. And I, I just I want you to stretch your hand over Emmanuel Baptist Church over us, Lord, and we're we're weak. And I want to pray that you would increase, intensify, expand, and deepen the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. To to make us into people who truly desire your best, Lord who truly desire Your best, the very best You have to give us. We pray that the blood of the New Covenant would be poured into our hearts. We pray that You would write Your nature and Your love into every fiber of our being and who we are. And we know we can't, Lord. Take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Open up our eyes to the value of who You are and what You are through the power of Your Gospel. Open up our eyes and our hearts and our spirits so that we can just receive what You freely offer and freely give us, Lord to make us vessels of Your glory in the city of Ridgecrest. So the people will be able to see You when they see Emmanuel Baptist Church and say, I need that. And Lord, deliver us from our anxieties. Deliver uh, right now anyone who is dealing with, with fear and anxiety and 
a sense of uh, panic even, Lord. We, we rebuke those fears and anxieties. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we rebuke that. And we speak the healing and the blood of Jesus over everyone watching this right now, everyone listening to this. We put our faith in You, Jesus. That You can heal us, that You can strengthen us, that You can build us up, that You can make us Your bride. So come Holy Spirit and be poured out on every individual member of our church and let Your light shine in this community, Lord Jesus. In Your righteous name we pray. Amen.